Well, we were um, in worship last week, and I didn't really, I, I saw something about it on uh, Twitter in the morning, but really didn't hear anything, but then the gravity of the situation played out so that uh, by the end of service, I'm sure we've heard by now that there was a horrible um, incident in Orlando, Florida, the murder of 49 people with another 53 injured, and uh, you know, while we weren't unaware of it last week, I think a lot of us have spent the week just hearing more about what happened there. And um, it's just been the subject of a lot of uh, commentary that people have talked much about what happened there. And I think it's important in incidents like these that we try to make sense of it from a faith perspective. Um, And fortunately, I really believe that that collides with the study and the text that we're looking at. At this morning. First, and sometimes we just make assumptions, and you know what happens when you assume, and I'm trying to avoid that here. So I think it's important that we understand the relationship between ourselves and the world. And probably specifically, because we do this every week, sometimes we take for granted the role that the scriptures actually play within this. And We believe that the Bible is no ordinary text. We believe that it's the inspired word of God, that it was written by humans. However, that that text that was written was inspired by the Holy Spirit so that God injected his view within that and that also it's been protected over thousands of years through processes of winnowing down, trying to decide which texts end up in the Bible. Interesting thing, this last week there's been a lot of argument. I didn't even touch on it here, but there's the, this gospel that talked about Jesus having a wife. And there was a, a, a scholar that was saying, no, this is, this is at the time it was all written and happened. And then she just finally discovered after, <laughs> after a reporter actually looked into it. It's like, oh, this was actually written 800 years after Jesus lived. So... You know, when we look at the Bible, there's this idea that we want to kind of say, no, there's just some sagely advice and wisdom. But what we as a congregation believe, and millions of people throughout the world, and generations, thousands of years of generations, Christians believe that this word is different, that it is the inspired word of God. So when we try to connect to the world, what the scripture permits us to do is to see what God is telling you and I. Many of us long to hear God's perspective on things, but it's important to realize is that we have his perspective. So when you feel trapped, you might say, okay, I I wish that God would speak directly to the situation. And friends, he's spoken to a myriad of situations that have covered almost every, virtually every incident that has risen in human history. So again, don't get me wrong. It's not that the Bible have all the answers, but most importantly, it acts as a lens offering us perspective to see the world. And that's why we can look at what happened in Orlando a week ago and look at it through the lenses of scriptures and see relevant response and hope for us. Okay, so you might be like, how does God speak to this situation, friends? He does, and he has for thousands of years, as for all other tragic situations. And that's what I want to start with is three things about what happened last week. And the first thing we need to admit is that it was tragic, that human life was lost, and God does not approve or embrace that. 
Now, for another time, another sermon, I've actually preached that here at Echo, if I can remember how I've done it, is that we've looked in the Old Testament, we're in the Old Testament now, and you look through and you'd be like, wait a second, God told his people to go into the promised land and go smite crazy. It makes 49 deaths just look insignificant. It was tragic any way that we spin it. And for us to be able to say, well, wait, God is a murderer himself and that's what he longed for, does not actually do a a good job of looking at the whole text. And we can get through this idea of holiness, looking at it through the broader lens to try to say, no, what God is trying to do is show us the value of holiness in that instance. And that does not reflect to this. So the first response that we need to have, which I hope almost all of us had, was that our hearts should break because it was an absolutely tragic incident. The second thing I think needs to be said, and it needs to be said not just because this is what Echo Church says about this or this is what Steve says about this, but this is something that our examination of Scripture says. It's absolutely indefensible. And the beautiful thing about the internet is that it connects us to the world and allows us to have opportunities to see what's happening everywhere. But the curse of it is that fringe thoughts tend to infect other people's perspectives and let people to say some of the most ridiculous things that, if not challenged, can be assumed as if it is approved. And this is something that, you know, the scriptures say and we say as a church is that it's absolutely indefensible to think that somebody could come in and find any justification for murdering people like this. And that is something that I've heard and read other Christian people say this week, and it breaks my heart. And for us also, and and we'll get into some of this, but for us also to say, well, this is just an accurate portrayal of what Islam is, and that's the enemy. I think, you know, and again, I've studied Islam, and it's just the idea that you have to understand is that this American incarnation of it, that many Muslims in our country practice, like the vast majority has nothing to do with it and find it reprehensible. So for us to say, well, this is just true Islam, is akin for us to try to say, well, the Crusades are just pure Christianity, taking its cues from this Old Testament text. So friends, let's just not mess around with this, but it is absolutely, utterly indefensible. But there's one thing where I want to hone in this morning, which I think speaks to this more so than anything, is that this is incredibly complex. It's one thing in my conversations, and many of your conversations that I have with people, is that there's so much that intersects with this one incident right here that it, 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 it is not just simple. Like, that was another thing I saw on the internets this week, is a lot of people are trying to say, oh, this is just cut and dry. It's just about, you know, it's about the LGBT community, right? And it, it's just not that simple. It's about Islam. No, it, it's not that simple. It's about terrorism. No, it's, it's not that simple. It's about gun control, friends. And when we try to take something like this and boil it down, what we're really doing is an overall disservice to the people that lost their lives, So how do we, again, getting back to the idea, how do you and I make sense of that? And again, what we do as a community, we believe that there's answers in the scriptures. And I believe that we are just blessed this week to have an incident to be able to see this. And what we're going to do is look through this through the life of Solomon. And Solomon, we believe, was a historical figure. And there's archaeology that speaks to this and about Solomon. He um, was one of the most influential leaders in biblical history. 
And he covers basically chapters 3 through 11 in 1 Kings. We're not going to go through all that. We're just going to try to get through Solomon one point this week. We're going to talk about his construction of the temple next week. But basically, we want to cover his life this week. And even people who are not Christians usually know about Solomon. What do they know about Solomon? He was, he was wise. And Solomon is known for his wisdom. And if you don't know for this, in 1 Kings chapter 3, the exchange happens where God goes to Solomon... Verse 5, and he says to him, Solomon, ask me for whatever you want me to give you. And later in the text, there's actually some prompts that God said, you know what, Solomon, my servant, there was a whole list of things. You could have called for the death of your enemies. You could have called for unparalleled riches. There were all these requests that you could have made. But what Solomon says in verse 9 is give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. Solomon recognizes that, you know what? This is God's people. I serve him. And for me to govern properly, I need wisdom. And friends, in a time like this in our country, in our culture, wisdom is something we all need to be able to discern what's happening. So now let's get to 1 Kings chapter 3. And Kristen, you're going to be reading for us. Who said there's going to be Ryan? I missed who it was. I heard voices. Ryan's going to read for us. And this is probably, again, if you're familiar with the Bible, one of the more popular stories about Solomon. When he asks God for wisdom, the author tells this story about wisdom and action. So, Ryan, if you will read verses 16 through 28. It's a longer portion, but it's this complete story from 1 Kings chapter 3. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me. Can't help (laughs) not laugh. It's horror. It, this is a horror. Alone story. back crib. <laughs> there. Like, and thus cribs were created yeah. and this problem was alleviated. But we'll, we'll deal with it as yeah. is. Go ahead. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said... No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother." And all Israel heard of of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. We moderns, obviously, through Ryan's humorous view of this, we are less impressed with this story, right? 
you know, we're like, just DNA test this and we're good to go. Like nobody's cutting babies in halves, right? It works out. Understand that what Solomon was dealing with, it. He, had, he had no data to work with. He had no testimony. There were no like, it's not like, you know, the proverbial, my baby had a birthmark and we can prove it. Like there's nothing to work with here. Now, before we even dive into this story, something that the text does that is very interesting and you need to get it from the beginning of this. So recognize here, This story follows immediately after Solomon said, Lord, these are your people. Give me wisdom to govern these people. And the transition just goes to, now there were a few prostitutes. Okay? And it goes to, and by the way, one of these prostitutes was so devious that when her baby died, she stole somebody else's kid. And, you know, again, that's a tragic story on the surface, right? And, you know, there are horrible stories from the streets and society today that rival that today. But here's the thing that the author is giving a nod to. It's like, hey, remember, this is happening among God's people. Okay, so when we look at prostitution, it's interesting living in the city. I deal with people who live in the city uh, and they talk about this, is that there is this just abhorrence for prostitution just because of what it means about their broader community. But then what we have to ask is, how are we complicit within that? Why has prostitution been known as the world's oldest religion because it is a, was a way even in ancient times for women who had no discernible way to make income to make income off of the resources that they had and it exists today so today we have this stigma around it the one thing that we know basically it's it's sad and it's also a sign on us true it's a sign on society when we're like oh i just can't believe that these people are this way it's a sign on us because we're complicit in living in this society now take that and multiply it because this is god's people and here's solomon the man who just asked for wisdom is now ruling over a country that's supposed to have it all figured out it's god's nation and yet this type of thing exists and that's what the author is trying to get us to see is that as much as we want to try to get back you know make israel great again it doesn't exist it wasn't when it was right And this is something that the author is trying to say. So this is what Solomon does. And he does this thing where, you know, again, we were just like, oh, wasn't that savvy? Yeah, probably not. A lot of us today be like, you know, even just pretending to say I'm going to kill a baby to make things even is just demented. But at this point, it's supposed to be a sign of God's wisdom. And the projection that's supposed to be greater for the people is that they're trying to say, oh, this is amazing. This is godly wisdom that he has. And now we understand that this king will be able to act judiciously and well and make proper decisions friends here's the issue that we get back to the whole issue of the morning which is complexity it's never this easy and as ryan reads forth um, the beginning it's one of the things i'm doing now we're just jumping all over text to try to let you linear thinkers just really have anxiety we're going to go back to the beginning of the chapter because there's something that happens here that seems innocuous, but is also playing into what the author is trying to say about the whole situation. So, Ryan, verses 1 through 3 of 1 Kings 3. 1 through 3 or 5? I'm sorry. Verses 1 through 5 of 1 Kings 3. Thank you. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. 
So what's interesting here is that Solomon is shown to get into a relationship with an Egyptian. And you and I maybe have this concept of Egypt from our, you know, high school history class. Maybe if we're biblical students, we understand that Egypt, uh, that's what I meant, Egypt, is not an ideal location for the Israelites because it's where they were enslaved. And actually, the rest of the scriptures talk about Egypt. The author of 1 Kings knows exactly what he's trying to do right here. And recognize, too, the reason we went back to that is that, again, this idea of Solomon as being wise, when he asked for wisdom, this had already happened, which just showed why he needed wisdom desperately. Because the first act described in his new reign is that he married an Egyptian princess, okay, which was bringing unity to all that Egypt represented. For the Jews and the Israelites, Egypt represented brutality and exploitation and bondage, the demeaning of the human spirit. Egypt was lost and their escape from Egypt was reward. And here Solomon, the first thing we see is just like, hey, I'm going to connect back up to Egypt. So there is this metaphor at work right here trying to see in the person of Solomon who he really is. Is Solomon the one who goes to high places which God hates? And even though you're like, well, but he sacrificed a thousand animals, which that's a lot, right? Like, you know, he, he was like really dedicated even though he wasn't perfect. That should count for something, shouldn't it? But what the scripture writer is trying to get you and I to figure out is where is Solomon going to land? And back to our simplistic illustration. Is he going to land at the word of God and scriptures what God is asking? Or for a more worldly construct, which is his interpretation of what he needs to do? And again, the easy thing would be, let's just look at Solomon and let's just say all the virtuous things. He, you know, he was like, I'm going to pretend chop babies in half. What we'll study next week is that he's the one who makes the temple. Like, he builds God's house. That is, like, the most important real estate even here today in the entire earth. And Solomon was the one who got the location and constructed the first edifice on that site. So you might be like, no, Solomon's a good guy. But, friends, complexity enters, and it's never as easy as we think it is. Now, we're going to flip way forward to 1 Kings chapter 11 and Ryan if you will read verses 1 through 4 here to see how else Solomon uses to spend his free time now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh Moabite Ammonite Edomite Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father." In modern vernacular, we have a man that many of you might forget this, but his name was Wilt Chamberlain. And Wilt Chamberlain wrote an autobiography in 1991 where among many claims, and by the way, as a basketball star, Wilt was one of the most prolific scorers in NBA history. He was 7-1 in a day where height really didn't matter, scored a 100-point game in Hershey, Pennsylvania um, against the Philadelphia, was he, he was with the Sixers. I wasn't the Sixers at time. It was, you don't need to get into NBA lore. He was a good person, right? I will get distracted in the minutia of sports. That's not the point. In 1991, he writes his autobiography and also mentions that he had sexual exploits with 20,000 women over his life. 
And, you know, what's great is that when you make a statistical statement like that, people go back and try to figure out, the, like, the stats on it. And they basically, all of his friends were just like, no, that dude didn't have any chicks until he was 18. So they've gone through is that he had to average 1.5 women a day for the remainder of his life to be able to attain to that statistic. Okay? Now, why did Wilt make that thing? And Well, maybe the bigger thing is, why are math majors trying to look at the statistical variations of that? But that's another time. Why did Wilt make that statement? Because it was a sign of his virility, right? It was supposed to be like, look, I'm dude, I conquest, that's how awesome I am. You know, I score on the, on the boards and in the bedroom, you know, it all, it all worked out perfectly. So here's the thing, though, is that what we see in Solomon is basically the Wilt Chamberlain of the 10th century before Christ, right? And we see that this dude married and had concubines, and there's just too many women's, women's, too many women's in his life for him to be able to act in, 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 and actually, who knows when this guy actually did any wise judging, because he was just like, I, I don't know, like some contestant judge gone awry. Here's the thing with kings in the ancient world that we mentioned last week about David. Broader from a pagan aspect, this was a sign of really, this would have been something that ancient king, uh, ancient peoples would have been proud of. They're like, yeah, our king, he, he can keep going and going and going like the Energizer Bunny. And yet for God's people, this is a sign of shame. And what we see here within Kings is the, you know, the, the issue with this in verse 4. It's not this, that he had all these ladies, but ultimately because they were of you know, foreign birth around all over kingdoms, that they turned his heart away from the Lord. And again, Solomon faced that dichotomy and basically he said, I'm going to navigate a way that I choose. And how does God feel about this? Ryan, do me a favor, go down a few verses to read verses 7 through 13, please. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemos, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Whoops. You're okay. No, my phone. Use real Bibles, guys. Verse 11. And therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this had been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So similarly to David, as we mentioned last week, God is just like, look, Solomon, you're my guy. I want to stick with you. But there comes a point when God just says, I cannot bless your exploits. And therefore, there will be punishment for that. And the punishment is going to be everything you thought you had is going to be gone. But because I made a promise to your dad who did the same thing, hoping that generation 2.0 or you know, version 2.0 would supersede that, it did not. Therefore, it's all going to go away. I'm not going to do it in your lifetime, but it's going to happen. And again, what's interesting is that for the rest of our study in First and Second Kings, it's going to be this moment that kind of separates everything out. And all of these horrible things that happen can be traced back to Solomon 
who had this moment where he asked for wisdom, was granted godly wisdom, and squandered it. Just to isolate one issue within here is that we read of some foreign gods, and there's the god Molech, and understand that Molech worship was abhorrent, and it's mentioned over and over in scriptures, and archaeologists have shown that, is that Molech worship basically consisted of a bull-like god, and this was a rendering from the uh, late 1800s, but most of these idols to Molech were created out of some sort of metal, and inside they were able to create a furnace where they would put wood, and therefore the metal would be incredibly hot to the touch. And Molech was always presented with open arms, and they would take babies in the thought that if we sacrifice our child to Molech, Molech will bless us. So they saw their babies as just fodder, as a sacrifice, and put that on the altar of Molech where they would be burned alive. And this is why through scriptures we see Moloch worship as being abhorrent. And by the way, the full circle is that when God goes in and says, we're going to clear the evil, why does God want to kill all the people in land? He's like, this is what they think is doable. This is just not doable. Okay? So you might be like, wait, is that loose justification? We can go into that aspect of it. But what I want to explain right here is this. Moloch worship existed. It was a pagan uh, way to try to appease an imaginary god. Who leads it in Israel? Solomon allows Molech worship to come back in. And what's very interesting is that you look at Molech worship and then think to yourself, what just we read in chapter 3, where Solomon was sitting between two people, one mother just in absolute consternation says, my baby is alive, she took it, and the other one just darkly saying, I don't care if you kill this baby, and Solomon's like, no, my wisdom is the one that allows little babies to find life, and by the end of his life, He's just like, you know what would be a good idea? Is that if we worship this God, whose primary form of worship is the killing of innocent babies. Not a great view of Solomon, is it? What do we do with him, though? And again, when we come back to these issues, this is what I think the scriptures explain to us. And what you and I need to understand is the complexity of situations and people for that matter. And this is what happens to Solomon. And we read here in chapter 11 that at the end of his life, he turned away. And we always don't know exactly how the scriptures intertwine together because of the things that we have of Solomon's in our possession, our books that are ascribed to him, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and the book of Ecclesiastes. We don't know how much of those books that he actually wrote, how much of that wisdom is his. But the most telling one, one that we as a church studied a few years ago was Ecclesiastes. And in chapter one of Ecclesiastes, we read basically, it's very interesting, there's a synopsis of wisdom and what you know, we can see this is at least being ascribed to Solomon. So if he didn't write this directly, somewhere this is paralleling his train of thought of how he was going to live his life. In Solomon and Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and it's 6 to 18, that's not the verses, I think it's verses 18 and following. Solomon said, I, looked to, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled Jerusalem over me, before me. I've experienced much wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also the madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. And this is what I want to key in for you and I this morning. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. Do you know why you and I have an issue living in our world today? It's something that I, 
I always think about this. And I have conversations with people about this. Because you think about our lives. And our lives living today, friends, are complex. As much as I might say, you know what, we have it pretty easy, you know? Like the one thing that we have right now that the church that met here originally didn't have is air conditioning. You know, might not be the best air conditioning right now, but at least it's comfortable on a warm day outside. I have the ability, you know, I I remember hearing stories of missionaries and studying them, is that when they would go overseas, they would pack all their belongings in a casket with the knowledge that when they went over, there would be no opportunity for them to ever come back so that they wanted to have a coffin there so that they could be buried wherever they went. And today, what's really cool is that after church, we could probably go Skype any of the missionaries we have. There's a connectivity. There's an ease to this. But at the same time, there's a complexity, right? Some of us have our pencil pushers. Some of us have office jobs. And, you know, in our jobs, like, even though we don't actually do much physically, we have to interact at a high level. And maybe during church this morning, some pagan employer of yours sent you an email that you feel obligated to respond to now, even in this moment where you should be detached for work, right? Like, I, we think, like, okay, even though we have things easier, it's a complex world. But you know what, friends? I'm not sure that the world is actually any more complex. I just believe that we are more aware of the complexities inherent within it. So what's interesting is that a horrible incident that happened in Orlando, basically, you know, in the wee hours of the morning where we got together, by the end of the day, we knew exactly how it transpired. On New York Times, there was actually a diagram of how the shooter went room to room. Like, that's unparalleled information. And I think how that that just comes into line with what we see here within the scriptures is this. Is that you and I now are privy to so much information. We have to figure out how to process that. And that's why it's difficult. That's why you and I struggle with faith. Because you might be like, wait, you know, just like 200 200 years ago, were they just racist, prejudiced, ignorant neophytes? Like, was that the issue? And I would say that maybe ignorant might be the one applicable adjective for it. Because the thing is, is that people did not know. Because even just to, you know, like over 150 years ago, the chances of you going further than just within a 30 mile radius of your life was just minuscule. So all you knew were the people in your lives. All you had access was to their wisdom. And today I can find out something that's happening in Kuala Lumpur three seconds after it happens. And therefore what I have to do is figure out how does this tragedy, these horrible things align with my life. But even as we look at the complexity, there's a key to this as people of faith. And what that is is that you and I need to be founded in what our faith actually is. So you're like, oh, way to preacher that thing right there, Steve, right? Like coming back to, no, it's all about the gospel. Friends, it's all about the gospel. It all is. Because if we don't have that foundationally, it's impossible for us to see then what what is happening in the world means to us personally. What's the gospel? The Roman road, if you will. And I I really look back, I might not, I might have done this just once in 10 years, but we talk about the gospel all the time and we refer to it, but just understanding that it's scripturally based. That's why we look at the scriptures because we figure out what does salvation mean to you and I? What it means is that no one is righteous. No one is righteous. Okay. And that is the mistake that some of these Islamic terrorists and Christian terrorists begin their mentality with is they think there's right and wrong i'm right they're wrong and therefore i have the ability to act the reality is 
We're all wrong. None of us are righteous. You might be like, wait, I'm a pretty good person. Friends, I'm an asshole. And you know that, right? Like I hear a sound thing and I just get pissed. Some dude at the front door, he just came to me four weeks ago, giving me a story, sits in front of me with a piece of paper today, lies to my face, and my, lies to my face. And the first thing I'm just like, I just want to be like, bleep off, man. Like I've got church stuff to get to, right? As much as I might be like, wow, I'm preaching the word, I'm doing well. Friends, I am not righteous. And even though you all are better than me, you still suck too. The only thing is I have a venue by which I can present my shortcomings, right? None of us are righteous. That's the key problem that we need to understand. Scriptures don't teach that. You're not. I'm not. Let's get over that. True? Then reinforcing this, like God has some sort of aspect of holiness that we're trying to attain to, but none of us can reach it. Friends, if Paul ends the book there, if the gospels stop right there, then this is not a religion I want to be part of. If it is that I need to attain to holiness by myself, it does not work. Thank Jesus, there's hope. Because God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were all not righteous, while we were flawed, Christ died for us. He died for every person in human history who has ever lived. He died for the entire world. And thus, getting to this dichotomy, the idea that there's evil and good, when we're all evil, the one thing that we can all do, and this is why when we talk of other religions and faiths, I will say, this is where we do get a little exclusive, right? Whereas I can appreciate my Jewish friends and my Muslim friends and my Buddhist friends and my atheist friends, ultimately what I say through the scriptures is that, what I say, what we believe through the scriptures and what the scriptures themselves say is that it's Jesus. Whether we acknowledge it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, we have to understand it's Jesus who saves us. Not because we are righteous. Why? The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal Christ, life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that's the gospel, okay? So recognize this. Why is that important? Because when I hear about this happening in Florida, what is the first thing that I try to do? Assess blame, right? Why have all of our Facebook friends conservative, progressive, liberal, gotten on the internet to try to assess blame because that's what we can do actively. So therefore, that it's homophobia is to blame, or gun control is to blame, or Islam is to blame, or terrorism is to blame. Pick your poison, but the reality is, and this is really Christian theology, this is what the scriptures say. Do you know who is to blame? I am to blame. You are to blame. Because of our sin, we are contributors to the problem. Okay, that's the answer that few people want to say because it's not sexy, right? Because at least we can control guns, right? Or we can end homophobia, but it's tough to just be like, just end all people because it's all of our faults. But here's the thing. Within the spectrum of theology... It's okay because we screw up. The randomness is what kills us. Because we now, in the complex world, think we have the ability to control everything, right? Right now, I can, on my phone, control the thermostat level in my house to make it perfect by the time I get home. But you know what I can't do? I can't stop things like Orlando. But I want to have that same control because I think I'm entitled to it. The scriptures don't project to that, people. 
And what we have to understand is that dichotomy exists. What we want to do is we want to do what Solomon did and choose a new path. You know, it's not really God's path, which is you're out of control. You're the sinner. Bad things are going to happen in this world that are inexplicable, right? And it doesn't just happen in Orlando. We've all lost loved ones. We've seen where kids have died. I, we were talking just last night to uh, Jesse, Aaron, uh, Larry, and Kristen's neighbor who was talking. He was just telling me stories because he works in the NICU down at, at Children's Hospital. And he's talking about how all these little babies die. It's horrible stories. We, and we always want to be able to engineer a perfect landing for it, but it's not possible. So the world tells us we can. We can't. And they know it, but, but we're going to try, right? We're going to try to eliminate all guns. We're going to try to change the mentality of homophobes. But friends, as much as those things might be good things in general, it won't be the ultimate solution to the problem. Okay? And that's tough for us to deal with. It's so complex. So what? So what do we do? And this is what really pissed me off this week. Because there was the reaction is like, well, you know, a lot of Christians were like, we're praying. I hope you've prayed. We're going to pray Wednesday night down at the house, 7 o'clock, for the church. We're going to pray about the church. We're going to pray about the city. We're going to pray about Orlando, right? We're going we're gonna to pray. We pray. And there were so many tweets where it's like, will you people just stop flipping praying and do something? And I'm like, you know what? As much as you're like, yeah, that makes sense, right? Samantha B., who did this impassioned thing, she even cited James, faith without work is dead. Friends, it doesn't mean we don't do anything, but it doesn't also lessen the idea that when we pray, there's a recognition of where we sit in this world. And friends, there, you know, I'm an asshole without a gun, right? There's always going to be crazy people who do things. It's horrible. What do we do? What do we do? One little place. I can't solve all the world. I can't solve any of the problems. I can't help us to walk through those problems today. We have to solve those as we move forward. But one thing about this. The thing I think hurt most this week, Christianity, were people who got on the internet and started to say stuff. And maybe it was you and me, right? Because some reason I feel like there's a need for me to speak into this because, you know, that'll solve everything, right? Like my one thought will change the minds of millions. Friends, Maybe Solomon wrote in Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I think the most important thing that we need to see, you and I, is sometimes we just need to pass, be pastoral. I have dealt with people who have lost loved ones. And as much as I want to be like the person who can provide every answer, it's like what Rob was teaching a few weeks from Job. Sometimes all I have to do is just be there and be pastoral and just love on people. And maybe that's it. You know, maybe you have some gay friends this week who were just really traumatized by what happened. You know, instead of trying to tell them, well, this is all a part of the gospel plan. <laughs> all right? My pastor just explained it to me. Here, I'll chart out. There's a road. Instead of doing that, maybe the one thing we can do is just be pastoral and feel their pain and cry with them and let them know that we feel that too, Right? If we were just pastoral, what we do, instead of trying to prove a point, and by the way, there's an opposite side to this, because as much as I'm like, I've got my, my gay friends who I want to help minister this, I have my conservative psycho friends that I want to pastor through this too, right? Who are just like, more guns and less Muslims will solve everything. And you might be like, no, I just need to address that right now. You know what? They're probably hurting too, and you, this might sound horrible to you, but really believe this. Are they not as in need of the gospel, a good understanding of the gospel, as people who don't even believe at all? 
So I've got some conservative friends. I'll give you an example. We had a missionary this week who put on the social media about how, you see, and, and by the way, this missionary, good friend of ours, it serves in a country with Muslim rule. Muslims, in the name of Allah, have killed people that he has known, ministers of the gospel. So what does he say when this thing comes through? See, it's just it. You Christians better get rid of all the Muslims in your land. That'll solve everything. And as much as I love that man and I love his passion, I'm like, no, that's not going to be the solution anyway. So somehow I need to be pastoral to him because he lives in the place where this violence exists every day, right? So we're looking for those easy answers. What is it? It is flipping complex. You know what's easy for me and you to do? To polarize, to choose a side, to try to say, no, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to declare this. Friends, it's, let's just... It's a fallen world. It's all shit. Thank God that he sent Jesus to be able to solve that. Be careful about this. Let me, I'm going on here, but this is, I think, the thing too. You know what I need to do sometimes? Not even just, you know, after I've been, been done being pastor or pastoral, you know what I need to do is to shut my app. I like to fill the space. I like to add words because, again, you know, maybe there's wisdom that I have that could really change this situation. You know, sometimes what I need to know is the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. I have opinions on Islam, on gun control, on the LGBT community, on the way that the church has treated those people. I have a myriad of thoughts. You know, and sometimes what I need to do is just hone in on who I am and just say, let's hit the mute button. I can love and show the grace of God and not have to then be an activist. This is not to say then, you're like, wait, so if I'm an activist, I'm doing it wrong? No, but recognize first, if you're going to be an activist and you believe this stuff, then the gospel needs to be the core of your activism, okay? And recognize this, is that when then we choose to do something, if we're not erring on the side of love and we're trying to err on the side of law, then friends, we're going down a road, which is not the Roman road. It is road to our own way of interpreting life it just doesn't help what we need to do at times like this is just view the world through those lenses not in ways to judge but to love i don't know that explains all this stuff you know again does it explain does it make it better does it's like you know do we leave now we're like oh now i know exactly what it is probably not because despite our best efforts and even though i feel like i've preached longer than i usually do yep i milked that cow even though we've gone even if we'd gone longer, I could still go for another hour and probably just not even skim the surface of this because of the complexity of the world in which we live in. I really think Solomon wrote this. I wasn't there. I really think he wrote this. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I think that's something that you and I need to... You know what? We hear fear in a negative connotation, especially in what happened last night. This is not supposed to be a fear like, oh man, I'm afraid that this God's going to smite me if I go to the wrong way. No, this is a fear in a way of respect. This is a fear how I knew that my parents always loved me, but when I did something extremely stupid, they were stupid. They were going to enact justice on me, right? So it was a loving fear, respect. What's interesting is I really believe Solomon said this because this sounds just like Solomon. And here's the irony. How did Solomon do with it? what we saw this morning not too well it's the complex world in which we live the one way where we can lighten the complexity of the world is internally i can simplify here i can live in the mix of a complex world but understand that i am flawed i'm a sinner in need of grace i need to fear and respect this lord who's done so much for me so again to solve everything 
No. Does it solve tragedies? No. Will they happen again? Friends, they will. Might even happen to ones that we love. But our faith comes down to grace. It comes down to grace. Not judgment, not justice, not law. God wraps us up in itself. If we can err on any side, let's err on grace. Heavenly Father, it's tough to live today. We know it's been tough to live at all these moments in human history. Like we have medical technology that allows us to live longer than any people in the history of the world. We're in a first world country, Father, where we don't have to worry about just all sorts of different things. And yet, Father, it's more difficult because like your servant Solomon wrote, is that we have knowledge and with knowledge comes this responsibility and it can suffocate us. Father, I ask for some liberation for us within our minds. Help us to be free to live in a complex world with the knowledge that we aren't perfect, but we are loved by one who is. And Father, I lift up our friends who perished in this horrible incident in Orlando. We lift up their families as they're grieving. We lift up the churches in that community that are doing their best to reach out in your name to people down there. We just pray for those people who are hurt. Our our LBGT friends who are all over uh, America who are hurting. Um, For our Muslim friends who are trying to live out a faith that they don't see here and they're being persecuted for it. Father, we just ask that uh, your spirit comfort them and comfort us as well. Father, we need you. We need your grace. As we go out this week and have tough conversations and interactions, just help us to do best by you. Help us to understand and fear you. Help us to live lives that reflect that. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.